Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. This episode, we'll be talking to Jenny Venable about cultural identity and the role food plays in the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and who is and isn't in our culture. Specifically, we'll talk about Cajun identity. I think for a lot of people in the U.S., Cajun identity is one that we all have some imagined version of, including music, language, and certainly food. Jenny will tell us about the ways the Cajun cultural imaginary has changed over time as a project of achieving whiteness and some kinds of respectability, and how Cajun food has at some times helped that move and at other times resisted a white cultural imaginary. Let me read you Jenny's biography. Jennifer A. Venable is a doctoral candidate in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. Her research interests include shared human and non-human oppressions and interpretations of feminism among Cajun women. For her dissertation project, she's utilizing a combination of feminist ethnography and archival research as her methods of inquiry to explore how race, gender, class, and religion have historically shaped Cajun women's sense of self and identity. Jennifer's work has recently appeared in Gendered Voices, Feminist Visions, and the Southern Quarterly. And in fact, we're going to be talking to her about that article in the Southern Quarterly, which you can also find in the show notes if you'd like to take a look before you listen to our conversation. But now, here's my conversation with Jenny Venable. Um, Hi, Ian. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I am doing okay, um, considering everything that's going on right now. Are you able to see family? How are you doing about that? I am in Louisiana now, and I am here with my partner in Lake Charles. And so we haven't really been able to see our other family much, but we have been, you know, doing um, like Zoom meetings or Skype so that we can at least stay more in touch. And I, I also feel like I've been a bit even closer to some of my like faraway friends because um, we've been using, you know, virtual visits so much more during the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're losing a lot of face-to-face contact, but because many of us are bored, those of us who aren't working essential jobs right now, we're, I, I find a lot of people are increasing the amount that they're reaching out to old friends or people they haven't spoken to in a while. My only concern is like, are we moving into a new way of relating to people is thinking that face-to-face contact is unnecessary and virtual sort of drinking parties and get-togethers, is that going to become a new normal afterward or are we going to go back? I mean, it definitely doesn't make up for seeing people in person. I also miss like hugging people and just, yeah, I mean, I miss drinking on the porch with some of my family and friends, <laughs> which isn't something that we can be doing very safely right now. That's true. So, I, I recently had a, a drinking party with my siblings uh, via Zoom and it wasn't exactly the same thing, but it was, it was something, I guess. So um, the paper that you wrote for the Southern Quarterly, I thought was really interesting for a few reasons. And I'm going to put a link to the article itself in the show description suggest everybody listening to this check it out. One of them is that this paper is reflective of your own personal experience and your own kind of personal perspectives. So what do you think is the value of connecting philosophy to sort of your personal perspectives and your personal experience? Because there's certainly a split, right? There are philosophers who only talk about abstract sort of thought experiments, and then there are people like yourself who try to talk about um, actually grounded kind of projects. 
Um, yeah, well, I think that we're often very much informed by like our experiences and the kinds of things that we go through. And so um, I didn't always allow kind of like my personal experiences to, I guess, seep into like my academic work. But Cajun studies and the just the kind of work that I'm doing now really just started calling me back in a way that I was actually really like scared to even kind of invest my time in Cajun studies. But I don't feel like I had much of a choice. <laughs> I think that for a lot of academics, we don't, I mean, it depends. Some academics do end up choosing their field maybe for more mercenary reasons. But I think a lot of academics just end up studying the thing that they find fascinating and they can't get away from. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your personal experience that informed this article? Yeah, sure. So I recently moved back home to Louisiana. Um, I've been away, you know, going to grad school with my partner to different states like Texas, Colorado, and Oregon um, for almost 10 years. And honestly, like moving back home has been a mixed bag of emotions. Um, I have a very like complicated relationship with the South in general and also like my Cajun identity. And so I'm originally from a small town in Louisiana called Opelousas. And what I started realizing more and more once I began to research Cajun culture and identity was that a part of me even like pursuing graduate degrees and leaving Louisiana was almost a desperate attempt to separate myself mentally, academically, and physically from Cajun culture um, and all the kinds of negative ideas that I had associated with it growing up. This is actually one of the first um, things that I even wrote once I started doing Cajun uh, research. And so I started the article just like with me, because I, I th that was the first time that I started really trying to grapple with, well, what is Cajun identity? And I'm actually still kind of like on that journey. <laughs> and so um, once I started thinking about really like what could characterize that, the thing that made sense was me going back and just thinking about memories that felt very like familial and Cajun, um, which was me just thinking back to the many like get togethers um, over food, you know, at my grandma's house with all my extended family and the times that we had together and how um, food often was central to why we were getting together. Yeah. That's great. So let me um, actually back up a little bit. So Cajun is one of those words that I think everyone in the United States has heard and has some sort of vague association, like they know it's connected to Louisiana, you know, maybe they know it's connected to, I don't know, spice mixes you can buy at the grocery store, but I don't know that people necessarily have a very good definition of that term. So since you're working in Cajun studies, maybe um, you can define it for our audience. Yeah, sure. And so first of all, I want to say that, like I said, I'm, I'm still trying to define it for myself. Um, sure, but, of course. Um, <laughs> but in general, Cajuns are French immigrants who settled in what is known now as Nova Scotia, Canada, and now live in, Louis in South Louisiana. And so through my research, I've noticed that the most common origin story for Cajun like unity or identity is kind of the story of exile and resiliency. So most Cajun and non-Cajun folk understand of Cajun people as descendants of Acadians um, who around 1755 were exiled from Canada. And then during the next 10 years after their exile, um, they kind of scattered all along the U.S. Eastern seaboard until um, a handful of them ended up in South Louisiana. So that's where they settled along the Gulf Coast in the swamps and marshes. 
but like culturally, I think that people see like Cajun culture as like this, like fun, loving Southern hospitality kind of idea. But um, as I've traveled, people don't actually know a lot about Cajuns. And so mostly people understand Cajun folks um, through food. So a lot of people have associations of like gumbo and crawfish whenever they think about Cajun culture. Yeah, it's one of those, I mean, I was about to say it's strange. So let me instead say it's predictable that Americans don't know this history of an ethnic cleansing that happened. Uh, but that kind of background, of course, is going to inform the people who are themselves um, essentially expulsed from an area because of their ethnicity. So as you said, a lot of people who aren't themselves Cajun don't live in Louisiana or in that area. When they think of that word, tend to associate it with food. How much does food play a role in the identity of, in Cajun identity for um, actual Cajuns? Um, so I do think that food is central to a lot of Cajun culture. Whenever I even in the beginning started thinking about, well, you know, what makes me Cajun or what are some characteristics that um, I think of whenever I think about Cajun? It was um, not just the kinds of foods, but those kind of like gatherings that where food was like the heart of the gatherings. And so Food, I do believe, is central to Cajun folks because of this historical struggle of famine and poverty, um, especially in Louisiana. I also think that Cajun, like a lot of Cajun women, uh, in terms of like whenever they think about preserving, you know, the special things about Cajun culture, a lot of it has to do with um, the kinds of dishes and recipes and even like ways of cooking certain foods to pass down to their families. Um, I also think that food became central because Cajuns were pretty isolated uh, in southern Louisiana. And so they often just really used what was around them and what they had. And so a lot of our dishes were made out of necessity. And so it became like a really big deal. Right. No, that makes sense. And in fact, we're going to talk about some specific foods a little bit later in this conversation. But you also employ some tools uh, in this paper that I think are really interesting so I'd just like to talk about those for a minute. So one term that you use is social imaginary. And that's not your term, but it is, I think, a very powerful kind of academic lens. So can you talk about uh, what that term means? Yeah, so I um, had used a little bit of Charles Taylor's uh, concept of the social imaginary. And the way that I basically applied it was as a set of values, laws, and symbols that come to represent a particular social group. And that these associations come to shape the way that even the people in those social groups see themselves and conduct themselves. So I also think about it as a way that we see of like who belongs in our social groups. It's really about how we're imagining ourselves. Yeah. So the, the idea that it's um, partly shibboleths that sort of like, you know, a real fill in the blank of identity person does this or that or doesn't do this or that. And then also we are the kind of people who do X, right? Um, yeah. So, but what's interesting in your paper is that you don't just stick with that term social imaginary, but you also think about um, what it has to do with food in what you call the culinary imaginary. What is that uh, referring to? Uh, yeah. So this is a term by Sandra Gilbert, uh, the culinary imaginary. And um, I generally just think about it as an application of Charles Taylor's social imaginations, but in relation to food. Um, so it has everything to do with you know, how we collectively imagine or think of food, um, how we understand food as a particular cultural narrative. For instance, how we uh, associate particular kinds of food 
with particular ethnicities, um, you know, like marinara sauce as Italian or even more broad, like white bread as American. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, there can be a lot of, it can be quite important, you know, for example, that your family learns the recipes that you have or that, or even just like to make sure that your children eat spicy food because that's what we do as whatever identity. Yes, that's very important. Um to eat spicy foods, we whenever people are like eating, I mean, uh, feeding their like small children, they're always very proud whenever they like spicy foods. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, as uh, an Irish American and German American, for like a brief window, my kids weren't that interested in potatoes, and I was deeply shocked and offended. But <laughs> they came back around again. Uh, so, but the uh, specific phrase that you use when thinking about Cajun identity, which I think is uh, very interesting is this idea of a white culinary imaginary. So if culinary imaginary is about our, you know, our society and our culture, how does this then sort of get refracted through the idea of race? Yeah, so I think that often the ways that foods are categorized has everything to do with, um, you know, what ethnicities or race that we imagine they're associated with. And so I think that, I can talk a little bit about this later, but I think that over the years, Cajuns, because of um, their socioeconomic class and how often their class was racialized, so they were looked at as like the other instead of white people because, you know, they were looked at as like lazy and uncivilized. And so because of like that history, um, Cajun folks, they've really participated in a lot of things um, to whiten themselves. And so whenever I think through the white culinary imaginary, it's basically the, the way that we construct or imagine foods that are part of white culture. And I think that the ways that we do that are we, um, we decide which foods are socially acceptable as edible, you know, what foods are appropriate to eat, which really ultimately creates the standard of edibility. Let me just pick up on that point you were saying earlier. I think for a lot of people, whiteness is thought of as a, I don't know, like a, a fixed category or something that, you know, is descriptive of people. But certainly for some ethnicities, it can be a state to be achieved, right? Something to work toward. So um, I guess in what ways were Cajuns coded as non-white historically? And what are some of the things that you're talking about that they've done to sort of achieve whiteness? Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, whiteness or race often, I mean, hasn't been fixed and race definitely shifts and changes over time. And so uh, poor social class for Cajuns historically became organized in a way that indicated a, a, a racial category or demarcation. Um, so not only did class signal negative traits assigned to Cajun folks, but it was also hinged on this uh, perceived racial inferi inferiority. In the 1900s, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes that ascribes really offensive and demeaning characteristics to Cajun folks. And it had everything to do with the way that uh, Cajun folks were perceived as like white trash. And like I said before, illiterate and as almost as if they were a people that were unwilling to change or to progress. And also Cajuns were very poor. And shortly after the Civil War, a lot of Cajun white folks and uh, Black Creole folks um, worked alongside of one another, um, you know, as farmers or sharecroppers. And so, like, Cajuns became associated with this idea of not, 
not quite white enough. And it had everything to do with their culture, this perceived cultural inferiority, um, because people kind of categorize them as too close to this idea of black folks in the South. So it's an intersection of both um, sort of almost guilt by association and classism, plus I imagine just ethnic differences, you know, a different language, different music, different, uh, different social imaginary. Yes. You know, most Cajun folks spoke only French in the early 1900s when um, children at school were not allowed to speak French. You know, they got like spanked on their hands and um, they got punished in those ways. So parents stopped teaching their children um, how to speak Cajun French. But, you know, Cajun folks were really poor and they lived kind of on the cusp of civilization or that's how people saw them. And people really saw them as like very simple minded and ignorant and so during the 20th century, um, you know, whenever Cajuns were kind of occupying this precarious racialized position b- because of their class, there were some like elite Acadians who, um, who were really nervous about this idea of Cajuns as white trash because it could it ultimately threatened this perceived inherent superiority of white people over that of people of color. And so around that time, that's when the elite white folks uh, really tried to start these initiatives to make Cajun folks more palatable. Um, I would just say more whitened, but um, more acceptable to like the general public because of their kind of perceived um, lack of or loss of footing. Sure. Well, I mean, ever since, you know, I mean, Fanon and a million other people have written about divisions that happen within oppressed groups like that, where the more wealthy or the ones that can pass as white or whatever the dominant uh, line that they're being oppressed on is, want to distance themselves and are extra repulsed by uh, people in their own group that they see as, you know, bringing down their group, making their group look poor or something like that. Yeah, threatening kind of like their stance, I guess. So that's the background of them, you know, being on the edges of whiteness, which is honestly, what white trash usually means as a term, right, that you're only conditioning or barely or you're at risk of falling out of, um, you know, that privileged category. What did they do to sort of, you know, achieve whiteness? So although Cajuns were, you know, located definitely somewhere at the bottom of like this social ladder, because of their whiteness, they were looked at as redeemable. And also like, you know, the elite Acadians, White folks um, thought that that was absolutely necessary to kind of to make to create this image that was a lot more positive than what had been before. Oh yeah, I just also want to mention that um, you know this idea of Cajun's redeemability was really important also in the particular climate because uh, this is like post Civil War era. So there's a lot of anxieties over the loss of white dominance and power, right? And so to have this group of white folks. Um, that blurred the lines between, you know, whiteness or or being the other uh, really felt threatening um, to a lot of people. And so they looked at Cajuns as, you know, capable of change and improvement, uh, you know, while people of color, especially Black folks uh, in the South, were not uh, given the benefit of the doubt. So at that time, the, the elite Acadians started collectively reimagining and ultimately reinventing Cajun cultural identity. And it was an effort to create a distance from Cajun's history of cultural and um, class affiliations that were deemed uncivilized, but definitely also an attempt 
to leave behind any connections to uh, Blackness or being closer to Black people at that time. So um, although Cajun folks experience a lot of humiliation and like negative stereotypes because of their identities and even affiliations to their own culture, there was a kind of cultural and ethnic pride um, movement that emerged during the 1960s and 70s called the French Renaissance. It's also called like the Cajun revitalization movement. There's a bunch of kind of different words for it. So although, you know, there were class reasons why this kind of revitalization or reimagination was important to Cajun culture, um, racial discrimination had everything to do uh, with the ways that insiders and outsiders perceived Cajun cultures, but were also adapting uh, that culture to mainstream societal standards. So what sorts of uh, projects were a part of that? Um, yeah, so, you know, before this time, Cajun people did not um, show a lot of pride or care in kind of like preserving this culture as much. You know, um, I, I talked to my grandma and she was saying that they knew, like she and her family knew that they were Cajun, but it wasn't something that was talked a lot about or even discussed. So this revitalization movement really um, started stressing, you know, the positive aspects of Cajun culture so that Cajun folks would be proud to actually identify as Cajun. The rise of this Cajun revitalization movement um, coincided also with other white ethnic groups. During this time, we saw a growth of ethnic pride uh, where Cajuns were, you know, very willingly identifying and paying homage to Cajun symbols and ancestry. And so what's interesting about this is um, not only did Cajuns not give it much uh, thought, like whenever my, say, grandma was a little younger, but other folks would actually avoid the term or the identity uh, marker of Cajun because of its negative associations. So you actually, you know, historically, you did not want to be called Cajun at all because it kind of, you know, dragged up all these very um, negative associations in, in regards to culture and class and even this weird precarious uh, racial demarcation. So during this kind of emerging um, revitalization movement, like I said, in like the um, early to mid 1900s, um, there was also an initiative to preserve Louisiana's Francophone heritage to kind of unify um, Louisiana under this idea of French speaking. So whenever they were deciding, you know, how they would uh, unite French Louisiana, instead of using Creole, which had actually historically represented um, very positive characteristics, um, they decided to actually, you know, use Cajun, even though it had all this, these like negative associations to it. And the reason why this is important is because even though Cajun image was entirely derogative before, people only understood it as uh, including white folks from the South. While Creole, even though that was looked at as like a positive um, mark of identity, it, include, it included uh, both white and black um, individuals and other people of color. Sure, I would think like including people of mixed race, uh, indigenous heritage too, yes? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Uh, so it's partly a project of whitening, you know, of, of distancing oneself from other oppressed groups in order to 
kind of enter into the mainstream. Definitely. And so during this time as well, this is whenever the narrative of Cajun history, like I mentioned before, you know, this exile from Canada uh, became really a popular narrative around uh, being an Acadian descent. And so Cajun folks began to really cling on to this origin story where they hadn't, you know, really given it much thought before. So in this way, as you mentioned, this like Cajun experience was, um, it was recreated as a whitened experience through this kind of uh, repetitive reference back to Canadian ancestral history. And the reason is just because people thought of Acadians in Canada as uh, monolithically white, even though there's a lot of um, debate even around whether or not that is the case. So this direct connection to Acadian past and also, you know, this decision to um, unify the whole French Louisiana under Cajun, it really acted to exclude like Black and Native American people and other people of color who um, wanted to identify um, or integrate within Cajun identity. And the interesting thing about this is that nobody can really agree on this coherent, you know, definition of Cajun culture or even Cajun identity. I mean, Cajun identity is definitely an amalgamation of different cultures and ethnicities. Um, And so it's really revealing that they kind of unified under these labels that would present them and represent them as white. And it had everything to do with making Cajun culture in general more palatable. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, sometimes the slipperiness of these terms uh, is part of their power because it can, at different times, include uh, and disinclude whatever and whomever, you know, the speaker needs it to. Yes, definitely. So what role did food play in that kind of uh, project? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned before, you know, food was tied to Cajuns historically a lot of the times because of necessity and poverty. Cajuns lived on the margins, you know, they lived on the swamp, or well, they still do, a lot of them, lived in, in the bayous, in the marshes, and so they really used what they had there um, to create their foodways. But, you know, there's this white culinary imaginary, which really constructs what foods are acceptable or should be standardly acceptable. And because Cajun folks were using, say, like animals, they were um, eating animals or using parts of animals that demonstrated, you know, that they were resourceful, but they were hungry. Well, can you give me a specific uh, example, maybe, of a food that was seen as central to this emerging Cajun identity? And maybe, if you can, think of one that. Uh, you know, was explicitly disinclusive. Yeah, sure. And so I talk a little bit about this in my article. And so the reason why I was talking about Cajun food is kind of straddling or, you know, occupying this very precarious place between whiteness and this exotic is because a lot of their food choices and food ways don't adhere to these kind of white standards of food acceptability in terms of what kinds of animals they're eating and what kinds, what parts of the bodies that they're eating. So I talk a little bit about how, you know, people outside of um, particular cultures love to kind of like dip their toe in, you know, they like to have this kind of experience through foods of other cultures um, so that they can feel close enough to it, you know, feel like they're experiencing something authentic, but 
but not close enough to be emerged and say any kind of like negative uh, parts of that culture. Yeah, so, I, actually, I actually talked to um, Lisa Heltke uh, a little while ago about exactly this issue about um, wanting to try quote unquote authentic exotic food and how that authentic judgment by a food tourist is made and like, you know, what, what it sort of uh, involved. Yeah, I, um, I talk a little bit about Helki in my paper. And yeah, she, she does question whether or not if you're like stealing from these cultures by um, trying to get some sense of exploration um, and trying those foods. And then I also talk a little bit about a feminist scholar, Bell Hooks. So she's actually not directly referring to food, but I still use uh, her theory of this consumption of otherness. And so she talks a little bit about how within, she says, commodity culture, ethnicity becomes spiced seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. Um, And so it's not necessarily like always a negative thing, right, to like try other people's food or um, try and uh, be open to that. But it's whenever those are the only things that you feel are acceptable um, or are willing to try. So in terms of the kinds of foods that are acceptable to, you know, most, I guess, white Americans or people outside of Cajun culture are like, say, like gumbo, you know, whenever people think about um, Cajun food, that's like one of the first things that they think about is gumbo. And, you know, Cajuns honestly still eat a lot of gumbo, but there, there have been particular ways that gumbo has been, say, like whitened or um, changed so that it could be um, accepted by many palates. And, you know, so one of the most popular gumbos is, um, say, like chicken and sausage. But whenever you think about the kinds of foods that Cajuns eat, there's tons of it, right? And, And it really reflects, you know, historically their poor socioeconomic class. So, for instance, this might not be as weird to people, but an entire roasted pig will be consumed uh, where you you eat every part of it. Um, and even boudin, I think that people probably don't know what that is. It's Cajun spice sausage, and it's made from rice, pork liver, and heart. Um, and it was traditionally stuffed in pig intestines. And then, you know, Cajuns eat squirrel. And b- before, you know, mad cow, they love to eat squirrel brain, like especially squirrel brain stew, <laughs> and alligator and frog legs, um, blood sausage, uh, liver, you know, a lot of organ meats are always associated with this racial demarcation or poor uh, social class. Yeah, and so I would imagine that when Cajun people are trying to promote uh, Cajun identity, um, you know, trying to gain admittance into the dominant mainstream white culture in Louisiana, I imagine that chicken and sausage are much more emphasized than, you know, squirrel brain stew. Yes, definitely. (laughs) As part of the process of achieving whiteness that we're talking about, there's some interesting work on how that was a project engaged in the 1800s of trying to get uh, immigrants to the United States, Italian, uh, Portuguese, groups like that, to eat uh, less spicy food, more sort of, quote unquote, wholesome American fare as part of a process of creating national unity and identity because there was concerns that otherwise these immigrants with their different, you know, delicious <laughs> food, frankly, uh, aren't going to mainstream into the society and that food is a way to get them to do that. Even uh, Jane Adams, you know, at Hull House uh, worked on trying to get people to learn American style cooking. And by that, they mean like British style cooking. Right. 
So where are things at now, um, would you say, with Cajun identity? I mean, you're working on Cajun studies, so presumably, you know, that, that process of self-reflection on cultural identity is continuing. Uh, yeah, so the project that I'm working on right now, I'm interviewing uh, Cajun women, and I'm really interested in um, pretty much how they kind of think of their own Cajun identity, because a lot of Cajun scholarship, you know, has been geared towards or written about uh, Cajun men. So I'm really trying to think through the ways that some of those histories and stories might be shifted um, whenever we incorporate uh, Cajun women's own self-identity as vital in those uh, descriptions. And so I am really interested in trying to grapple with some of the inconsistencies between, say, um, some of Cajun women's perspectives with that of feminism and activism. I'm actually trying to see if I can articulate a Cajun feminism. So not to jump ahead of papers you haven't published yet, but what sorts of things are you finding from these interviews? So I think that um, one thing that has been kind of surprising to me is that, like I mentioned before, some of like the older generations of women haven't really given their Cajun identity much thought, which makes sense. You know, it ta- I mean, I think that it's, it's hilarious um, that many academics are always asking these questions about identity and what, what that makes up. And, um, and so that's been really interesting. And then another portion that I really am discovering um, is that there's a lot of boundary keeping even within Cajun parameters. And so there continues to be, you know, folks who are kind of dictating what it means to be Cajun, whether or not that has to do with food or that you grow up in South Louisiana or that you speak uh, Cajun French or that you are a direct descendant, you know, from Acadians. And so it's really interesting because as a person who didn't um, grow up in like a bigger city, you know, I was never asked those questions. And so it, it is really interesting to just still think through socioeconomic class and like kind of elite mentality and how a lot of power goes into um, boundary keeping, not just, not even just through racial categories, but through all these different aspects that they deem appropriate. Sure. So maybe that's a good time to transition to uh, a specific recipe. Um, I've been asking everyone that I've interviewed so far for this series to suggest a recipe or a food that has some kind of meaning to them. Um, The reason why I started this is when I was teaching my philosophy of food class, uh, I would have my students present a food that was meaningful to them, some, something about their history uh, or their personal experience, and bring it and share it with the class. And what we found was that not only was this an interesting way to learn uh, about them and their own background, but that sharing food has such a you know, profound impact on people's relationships with one another. Um, you know, sitting down and breaking bread together sometimes can have uh, you know, this very deep, like literally visceral kind of effect on us. So we can't do that <laughs> over uh, audio, but the closest we can come to it virtually, I thought, is people sharing some food that meant something to them. So what recipe are you sharing with our listeners today? Uh, yeah, so the recipe I'm going to be sharing is a vegan meatball stew. And honestly, meatball stew in particular isn't the most, um, that's not why I picked it, even though my mom made um, a delicious meatball stew growing up. But uh, a part of my dissertation project as well is that I'm trying to incorporate or actually veganize recipes of traditional Cajun recipes. 
And so, and thinking through how important food ways and food preparation and dishes are to, you know, cultural and social like preservation and connections. I'm really trying to think through how we can keep those ties, but do it in a more sustainable way. You know, I think that a lot of Cajun dishes do come from the land in South Louisiana. And so I'm just trying to think about ways that we can continue to celebrate and take pride in those things, but do it in a more ethically and sustainable way. My initial plan was to actually go like get a recipe from these women and cook with them and just bring the vegan version of it. Yeah. You know, quarantine. So instead I might do what you're doing and like get them to submit a traditional recipe and then I veganize it. And then maybe after all of it, um, I could share it with them. But you know, I thought it'd be cool to like pair it with like one of their little stories or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would be great. And having a little conversation, not only with what that food means to them and their history, but also what, is there a reaction to the idea of changing some profound elements of that recipe? Like, mm-hmm. do they think that's fun? Do they think that's interesting? Or are they nervous? Or that, you know, those sorts of reactions I think are fun too. Yeah, definitely. I would imagine, given what you've said today, that you'll find some pushback from people who don't think that that food will count as real, right? Or genuinely Cajun uh, if it doesn't use the proper ingredients, if it's trying to be veganized. That's definitely correct. I have people. Um, some people in my family who actually will not even try my foods (laughs) just because they don't have, you know, animal flesh in them. And actually, I think that people will probably be more offended or uh, will have stronger reactions to my um, veganizing foods than say like my um, activist or feminist mentality. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, the resistance that you can get at that kind of level of food. I know that, you know, my mom, uh, when I first told her that I was vegan, was very upset because the way that she interpreted that is I'm saying, you know, those ways you like to show me that you love me, like baking scones or whatever. I never yeah. want that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. My family has uh, honestly been there. They still eat their meat, but they love my food. So they'll eat their food and all of mine. <laughs> And, it, you know, it shows the way that um, these sorts of ethnic identities continue to evolve, right? A, a new generation is interfacing, you know, the way that they were brought up and their traditions, you know, and taking that and mixing that with their own ethical judgments and sort of social and cultural awareness and making something new. Yes, definitely. Well, I'm excited to try it. That was my conversation with Jennifer Venable. Her article we were discussing, as well as links to her other work and the meatball recipe, which I've tried and can heartily endorse, will be in the show notes. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or feedback about this episode, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 